You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Nick Egan, Ph.D., an award-winning leader and executive coach who uses his deep understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy to encourage personal and organizational growth. His newly released book, Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, will form the basis of our conversation today. Nick regularly leads expeditions to various Asian countries, and he holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist psychology and had a stint at one time as a co-host on The Mystical Positivist earlier in the decade. That that was Buddhist Buddhist philosophy, not psychology. Did I say psychology? You did. Oh, that's a difference that we'll talk about in the show, Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Very topical. So we'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Bach Sonatas and Partitas, Volume 1, performed by Chris Teeley on mandolin. This piece is the Saraband movement from the Partita Number no. One in B Minor, BWV one thousand and two.
This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Fabulous to be here. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Nick Egan, Ph.D., an educator, award-winning leader, and executive coach who uses his deep understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy to encourage personal and organizational growth. In addition to coaching, he has taught meditation techniques for more than a decade. His newly released book, Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, will form the basis of our conversation today. Nick regularly leads expeditions to various Asian destinations, including Bhutan, Mongolia, Nepal, Thailand, and Tibet. Nick holds a B.A. in psychology, an M.A. in comparative religion, and a Ph.D. in Buddhist philosophy. And he had a stint as a co-host on The Mystical Positivist uh, earlier this decade. Well, we've been on for a while now. Well, Nick, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Great to be back in the studio with you both. It's great to have you. And, and um, we'll, before we get into uh, the discussion on shift, um, we'll allow that shift to happen naturally. But, uh, but just to fill us in a little bit on, on what you've been up to uh, since the last time. In fact, do you remember when the last time you, you appeared on the show was and I, what's been uh, happening for you since then? I don't. It must have been... It might have been over uh, over a year ago. Yeah, over a year ago. I mean, you were still uh, 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 the head of the Healdsburg School, and we had uh, quite a bit of discussion about education. Education, And I remember at the time that you had actually even talked about uh, that you'd been putting together a book Mm -hmm. and its contents. Uh, you know, there was some negotiation with the uh, school administrators about mm-hmm. whether you as a personage should put this book out or whatever. Yeah. And I don't know if this is the same book, but uh, it's a... I don't have that many books, Stuart. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> there's, only, there's only one book. Um, no. So, so far. Yeah, so far, exactly. Although I, I think that now, after after actually publishing this book, I, I'm more and more in awe of people that can do multiple books. Mm-hmm. Because I, I feel like if you are holding back your best material, it's hard to then kind of recreate that again and again. Um, so who knows? I just need more inspiration, perhaps. Uh, but lately, I've been doing executive coaching, leadership development. I work with a company called Level 52 out of Calgary, which is in Canada. Um, also, you, having my own clients through my own website, com, and not traveling a particularly... Large amount, but on occasion. So, how did that transition happen? I mean, what uh, walk us through how you go from the uh, head of school at the Healdsburg School to uh, uh, doing um, uh, executive coaching? Yeah, I think with any transition, it takes a while to gear up into what you're looking to try to do, right? And then eventually you kind of take the plunge into that. And I think for a long time, I've been wanting to really get back into what I see as an extension of psychology. And I think especially with like modern developments in psychology, um, I'm thinking of Adam Grant, I'm thinking of Martin Seligman, people that are really on the forefront of organizational psychology and quote unquote positive psychology. And we can talk about that later. Um, so just gearing up to the courage to to be able to leap out and start taking clients. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you're working with a an organization, but also you have your own website, and mm-hmm. uh, presumably the book is sort of part of the uh, branding of uh, uh, the unique 
voice that you're bringing. PhD.com or yeah. whatever it is. Right, yeah. I, I mean, the bo- books, I think, help with branding because yeah. people see books and, for whatever reason, um, tend to associate that with, like, an expert status, which, as somebody that's written a book, I can tell you that is definitely not the case, right? Mm-hmm. Just having a book does not make one an expert. Um, so, yeah, that definitely helps uh, secure clients. And it, more importantly, I think it gives people a sense of my approach, mm-hmm. which I think is very much combining kind of this Eastern and Western dialogue. Right. Well, well, that, well, that makes sense. And, I'm, and um, uh, Stuart uh, suggested that... Uh, it's probably not a coincidence that uh, the book came out just as you're or around the time that you're you're doing this uh, transition in your mm-hmm. professional life. Mm-hmm. I assume that's 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 an accurate assumption on his. Oh part. yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think it's uh, that's by design, definitely. And then going out and, and promoting the book also can promote a certain kind of, um, I guess, a connection with client potential clients and people hear what I have to say or. or things that I'm interested in, and that might spark some interest on there. So, on was, there. so was this a direction that you had uh, had your eye on for some time? Did this kind of arise spontaneously? I'm uh, kind of interested in how this uh, er- arose for you. Yeah, I, I've been planning. Um, it's interesting. I, if you go back to how I started in education, I actually was in psychology at the time, and then I was going to get my master's in um, comparative religion, and I never thought that I would teach outside of university level, which is its own story. We could talk about my brief foray into university teaching, Um, and so I kind of dropped into private school education at a different school, and fell in love with certain aspects of it, um, but it was never necessarily my career path as identified. What, um, just, just yeah. uh, uh, what aspects were you, did you fall in love with uh, of the teaching career? I mean, obviously, I think kids. You know, mm-hmm. I love kids. That is something that I think has always stayed with me, in fact, to the point where now I have three young daughters who I love and also drive me crazy on a regular basis. Um, but that's it's wonderful, actually, being a father. So I think... If you think about my career trajectory, um, which may be different than my spiritual trajectory, uh, it's always been in the back of my mind to kind of come back to psychology. In fact, early on, and this is interesting because I don't think we've ever talked about this either personally or professionally um, together. Early on in my psychology studies, after I completed my, my bachelor's degree, I came to a realization that I did not want to be a therapist. And at the time, there was no other option really open to me. Coaching wasn't yet really invented, or, or it was just beginning to be invented. Martin Seligman coined this term positive psychology at mm-hmm. the APA in, in 1997. So... I didn't know what else to do. And so I thought, you know, I'm also really interested in Eastern philosophy and Buddhism from a very young age, especially. And so I just took that and kind of ran with it, thinking that it would deepen my understanding of the mind, which I believe it has to some degree. So from my perspective, it's natural to go back into coaching, which does really, I think, draw heavily on psychological aspects that are similar to Buddhism. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So um, I, it's certainly something that is more popular now, and there's quite a range of people who uh, put themselves forward as uh, coaches. I mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. some of them more have a business valence. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are more consulting with organizations as a whole. Mm-hmm. Then you get the kind of the the other part of the spectrum, which are life coaches, mm-hmm. which are helping people with, um, you know, more how do they organize and fulfill ambitions or goals they may have for their lives. Mm-hmm. So, so so where are you on that spectrum that Stuart was just sort of outlining? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, 
I place myself strongly in the business category, business mm-hmm. and executive coaching. Um, now, that being said, through my training, which I did at the Coach, Coaches Training Institute, which CTI, um, one of the largest coaches training institutes actually in the nation. Um, and it's where, a, where is that located? So I did it. You can do it all over. It's okay. actually even international. I did it at the headquarters, which is in San Rafael. Okay. Um, and the way I chose them actually was interesting. A friend of mine... Uh, recommended that a friend of hers coach me because she was going through the training program and it was just like five free sessions and I came to it with a really high degree of um, arrogance you know I was like well okay I meditate every day you know I have a PhD and blah 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 all this stuff and I've I've studied psychology and I was so impressed by her methodology Hmm. that it led me to just hold her in such high esteem that I sought out the very first training through CTI. Mm-hmm. And again, I came to it with that exact same skepticism, mm-hmm. bordering, I would say, on arrogance. And, you know, what's I've done tons of professional development, right, as many people have. And they tend to be lackluster, I think, in general, or at least inspirational for a time, and then it kind of drops off. But I was very, very... Um, taken by their methodology and so i continued through the entire program so what does that program consist of it consists of uh five courses as the as the core and so those five courses and there's homework assignments and things like that where you have to gain clients but it's they're essentially different techniques that you're using within coaching to draw people deeper to number one what they're what would be most fulfilling to them and number two how is it what resources they have to be able to get there is there is there a a different track for the business as opposed to the personal coaching yeah that's a really good question um bringing it right back around so no to answer the short answer is no, mm-hmm. and I would say that um, in my cohort, I mean there were people that were working for Google, people working for Lyft. There are definitely people that I think are on the business side of things, mm-hmm. but I think in general it's more geared toward uh, a life coaching kind of approach, okay. and it just comes down to who you want to work with and mm-hmm. how you position yourself and your experience level, right? So like my experience in education and nonprofits, but also. I have a decent experience in um, multifamily real estate through working with my, my family's organization and things like that. So it was natural for me to go into the business side. Let me, let me uh, uh, it may be a, a slight a sidetrack here, but I know that, uh, and in the bio information that Stuart just recited, you have had a business of your own t- doing trips to uh, mm-hmm. all these Asian countries. I, mm-hmm. I, as I understand it, mostly uh, sort of Buddhist tourism, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering what that experience um, or how that, how that experience informed this um, new direction that you decided to explore and continues, maybe continues to inform mm-hmm. um, your coaching. Yeah, I think it does deeply inform it and hopefully will continue to inform it um, in a few ways. The first, you really understand people, I think, deeply when you travel with them, right? And, and it can be, and it can be coming, you're laughing because I know you just came back from a trip with Stuart. It's, so. That's not why. <laughs> it's, it's because traveling with my spiritual teacher was the most stressful timing, was the, were the most stressful times of my life in general. Yeah. So that's why I'm laughing. No, I, I think that's it. That's exactly it. You see sort of people under the highest level of stress and that sends them to a particular way of being and then you also see them in these moments of elation that I think many of us don't have in a day-to-day experience Um, Mm -hmm. some spiritual practitioners aside of course so 
I think that through understanding those trips as sort of like almost a heroic journey, depending on where you're going, is one way to really think about a life journey and also a coaching journey. So if mm. we're working together, what is it that we're trying to accomplish and getting really clear about your dream or even like the dream behind the dream, mm-hmm. which I tell a lot of my clients, um, you know, let's just, let's say you're trying to accomplish a concrete set of goals. What is it then that's going to fulfill you about that? And then let's see if there are ways that we can inject that into your experience right now. Got it. So, okay. yeah, so I'm, I'm um, interested in, then in, in the, you know, the contrast. You bring spiritual techniques to some extent. Your, your, uh, your experience as a Buddhist teacher, a mm-hmm. teacher of meditation, mm-hmm. informs coaching. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm uh, interested in your perspective on is do you see the, the coaching as a quasi-spiritual uh, activity, uh, or do you see it as a profession that is uh, sort of bracketed from your spiritual practice? Boy, that's a great question. So, ideally, nothing should be bracketed from one spiritual practice. Well, so, uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't mean it in that way, because, uh, uh, for instance, in, in my job as an engineering manager mm-hmm. and a, uh, you know, uh, industrial manufacturer, I don't think, I don't go to work thinking that I am, uh, uh, if, I, if I use spiritual techniques, it's indirect. Right. You know, and, right. And, and to the extent that nothing in my experience is differentiated from a spiritual journey, I, mm-hmm. that's not what I'm asking. Mm-hmm. So I, un- I understand that distinction and I, and, or that lack of distinction. And we could go back there later. But yeah, but, but I'm, I'm more asking in terms of framing the, you know, be, because the difference is that, you know, at work, if I were leading meditation sessions and things right. like that, right. I, the boundaries may be less clear uh, yeah. in a coaching, uh, particularly a coaching where you're sort of grounding yourself partly with your experience in Buddhist uh, philosophy and mm-hmm. uh, positive psychology. There's a mm-hmm. there's more of a emphasis, or, or there's more of more of an invitation to think of this as a uh, a form of spiritual practice, and that's and that's what I'm trying to understand. If mm-hmm. if you understand it that way or experience it that way. So, I think that when you think about spiritual practice, when one thinks about spiritual practice, there's a tendency, like, I, if I'm thinking about it, I think about in a Buddhist context, I think about emptiness, I think about compassion, emptiness slash wisdom, I think about compassion, um, and I think about certain elements of the path, and then, of course, like an attainment, whatever that might be. But within Buddhism, in particular, there is also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, whether it was a slip of the tongue or not, it was it was well timed. The, there is a kind of Buddhist psychology, which is understanding how the mind works. It would be, it would, I mean, if you mapped it out and never put the term Buddhism on it, it would be a psychological framework, right? right? It, with some salvific elements, with the understanding that hey, this will help you in some sort of path. Well, but, well, we could say, I mean. With that, there's a context that uh, uh, Buddhist philosophy brings in that mm-hmm. Buddhist psychology doesn't necessarily have. Is that? Uh, yes, I would say that you can. There is an element of the Buddhist path that would be termed psychology that isn't necessarily leading in a direct way to a kind of spiritual experience. So, I use a lot of that 
methodology, which in my mind is not necessarily spiritual, but somebody else might look at it and say, look, that's you're using Buddhism. But I'm like, no, I'm, I'm pretty clearly using the Buddhist psychology aspect. Of the but, so when you're, when you're talking about Buddhist psychology, are, are we talking about Abhidhamma, you know, um, is or is this... Is it something else more general about uh, the, the training that you happen to have, which I believe is mostly from the Tibetan mm -hmm. uh, traditions? Yeah, so I, I mean it a little bit more generally than Abhidharma, but Abhidharma is present very strongly within the Tibetan tradition. In fact, one of my main mentors was an Abhidharma scholar. And so I, I think it's uh, Abhidharma in particular is just a cataloging and an understanding of the interplay of psychological factors. That's essentially right. what it is. Right. And so if you're using that as a foundation or as an add-on to coaching, it, is it spiritual? I mean, I, I would say it's in the eye of the beholder. I certainly don't feel as if I'm being a spiritual teacher while I'm coaching. Okay. That, well, that, that, that is the, uh, I would say that's the answer to the question then. Mm -hmm. um, and the, and part, partly why I was thinking about this, uh, um, like I, I was having a conversation with uh, someone that I have a mentor relationship with at uh, uh, work, or I'm the mentor, he's the mentee, mm -hmm. someone I've never met face-to-face. -face. Uh, he works in a different division. Oh, I didn't know you'd never met no, him face-to-face. No, -face. no, no, he, he, he lives in Ohio, and mm -hmm. and we... Do you, do you Skype or Zoom No, or no, no, it's all, all been phone. Huh. Um, okay. You know, and, and it, this was set up by a, an HR manager that I'd worked with at one time, and he was trying to do mentor. He thought I'd be a good mentor. And so in the relationship, uh, it went on for about a year where we were doing something that was more valence towards uh, effectiveness and work. But it's sort of taken this – we've continued the conversation, but it's kind of going more towards meditation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, – uh, uh, I just had a conversation with this guy after kind of a long hiatus where our schedules didn't work out, and um, uh, I, he was asking what I was going to do this weekend, and so I was talking, I was, so we're going to do our radio show, and and, and I, was, I was a little shocked because he acted like he hadn't heard about that before, and I, and I couldn't believe I hadn't talked about that, but I, you know, I talked about the radio show, and I talked about uh, the kinds of, you know, who the audience for the show is, because it's really aimed more towards you know, long-term spiritual practitioners and people who are oriented in that that way. And so he asked me this question of, well, you know, how is, you know, how is a how is a spiritual practice different from the, you know, like the meditation techniques we've been talking about? Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll put that question to you because it's uh, uh it's germane to this because uh, as we said, you can use meditative techniques. We see this in business all the time now with right. mindfulness, uh, right. and that is different or distinct from what I would call a spiritual practice. So how do you, how do you see that distinction? Uh, very much in the same way you were just describing. So, I mean, I've, I've taught, you know, quote-unquote meditation techniques, which, depending on the audience, sometimes I'll frame them as mindfulness techniques, um, to many different kinds of people, even outside of a spiritual context. So if you think about mindfulness techniques or meditative techniques, they're really they're cognitive techniques that, in the Buddhist tradition, kind of further concentration, and then, and that's the, that's the key point, it's the and then, you, you apply them to these spiritual pursuits, right? But it's just as easy to take those cognitive techniques and apply them toward different ends. 
and, and it could be business concentration. It could be just overall, you know, quote unquote, worldly happiness. And there, there are even stories about this in the sutras, right? I mean, we're all familiar. Probably many people are familiar with Angulimala. The he was the this great serial killer that his guru told, taught him certain kinds of concentration techniques, and then said, hey, if you really want to attain enlightenment, you got to go out and and kill a thousand people and take their Anguli, which is their like finger bone. And so he had 999 of these. Uh, his teacher told him. His teacher told him that, yeah, this like demonic teacher. And then the thousandth one happened to be the Buddha. And for some you know miraculous reason, he couldn't kill the Buddha. And the Buddha actually shifted his mind and said, oh no, actually you're. You're sadly mistaken, you know, being a serial More killer. Than sadly. Yeah, yeah, being a serial serial killer is probably not the way to attain enlightenment. And then he applied that concentration and attained arhat ship, which is, you know, a certain level of enlightenment quite quickly. So, even in ancient times, there are these really clear categories of concentration, quote-unquote meditation practices that aren't necessarily spiritual in and of themselves. They're tools that lead you down the spiritual path. So, okay. So that 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 the other the other distinction I think in um, that has come come to the fore of my thinking as, because I've been going back over some of the uh, Gurdjieff material and reading uh, Morris Nicole's psychological commentaries hmm. on uh, Gurdjieff and Ospinsky's writings. Hmm. There's this distinction that of um, how life can be a means or life can be an end, and Ordinary life, you know, when we're grasping for experience and we're grasping for things that we want, um, is there the stuff of life is the end. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a spiritual practice, um, particularly in, the, in this in the context of what I was reading, you know, he's referring to the work, the, you know, the fourth way work. Mm-hmm. The life is a, a means in the sense that any experience that arises in one's field of awareness has the possibility of being transformed and utilized for the growth of being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, d- deepening your sense of being on a vertical axis relative to the horizontal axis of uh, ordinary life. Mm-hmm. And that life has its purposes, uh, and life will do what it does, and uh, it it has its aims and its, its, its means and its things that it uh, demands. But... Um, and it's somewhat indif- indifferent to the question of enlightenment, mm-hmm. and in, and the benefits of enlightenment are somewhat indifferent to the uh, ends that one might get in life. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, that distinction, for me, seemed to answer the question of like a spiritual practice seems to be more about using life as a means, mm-hmm. and a uh, technique uh, really is context dependent. A, a spiritual technique could be used for. Uh, attaining uh, the ends of life uh, and uh, attaining things in life and not really have that transformational potential uh, at a being level that's uh, available when you shift the context. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And from, I would say, um, uh, orthodox Buddhist perspective, that you can divide those ways of being into either worldly or non-worldly, right? With worldly being anything, whether it looks spiritual or not, you know, it could be the exact same spiritual techniques, these meditations, and but you can still be in service of the worldly, of your, what you were talking about, um, what was it, life, not life as an end, life as as an end, life as an end, yeah, yeah, and versus, um, 
you know, an enlightened perspective, which would, or at least on the path, a non-worldly perspective would be life as a means, um, which is exactly what you were saying. And I think that it's interesting. I mean, I, I love coming on the show because we quickly go down these, I'd say, fairly complex rabbit holes. But many teachers within my tradition, the Nyingma tradition, the oldest tradition of Buddhism, particularly those that are um, versed in Dzogchen, which means the great perfection, they will talk about an ordinary perspective on meditation as nothing more than worldly. And so, and that's very interesting because it's like, okay, you can, you can sit and do meditation for hours and days and months and years. And actually all you've really done is a worldly meditation. And there's these really famous stories of these masters calling out these very advanced students and saying, look, you're never going to attain enlightenment. You can meditate for years and years and years and years, and you're not going to get it because it's only, you're, you haven't somehow jumped the chasm into the non-worldly. Well, that's that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I had, uh, before we shift to talking about sh- your book, Shift, um, I want to I wanna just, uh, and because you've, you've uh, been discussing this issue, I, I noted when I was uh, transcribing um, your dust jacket bio into uh, the uh, script that Stuart just read from, I noted that you use the word that you uh, use the phrase you've been teaching meditation techniques for a decade or more Mm -hmm. and not teaching meditation. Mm -hmm. So is that related to this? um, Is that distinction, assuming that you were intentional about it, which I'm sure you were, you're Mm -hmm. a smart guy. um, Is that distinction meaningful and, and how does it relate to what we've just been discussing? Yeah, no, I think that's right. It, It was intentional. And the, goal of the book, even though I hearken back to lots of Buddhist stories and to some degree some Buddhist meditation techniques, it isn't a Buddhist book per se. Right. And, and so it's not, I'm not claiming that I have any attainment or that through reading this book you will understand things and then get a spiritual uh, you know, bolt of lightning from the blue from this. But there is a great value in going back to the Buddhist psychology piece, the techniques relative to psychological and emotional well-being that can help further things. And if it's applied towards spirituality, all the better. If it's applied toward a more worldly existence, that's fine too. Well, I know Stuart's going to want to follow up on that, but I but I'd, I'd like to set the stage for that discussion um, by finding out more about positive psychology. I've heard of Seligman. Yeah. I don't really know his work that well mm-hmm. and um and you mentioned positive psychology in the book mm-hmm. um but um sketch for us uh, what 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 that means for you how you apply it mm-hmm. in, in the book specifically because I, I you know you frame it in the book as as the buddhist psychology and mm-hmm. this positive psychology mm-hmm. and and i don't really quite know how those interact so so tell us sure well, I mean, those are both very broad categories um, that I do reference in the book, and I think that they do go hand in hand to some degrees. But if you really, if you look at positive psychology as it is now, it's really the breaking wave of a long, long tradition within psychology. So when I was coming up in psychology, there was a movement toward um, humanist psychology, and then sometimes framed as like transpersonal psychology. And transpersonal in particular was really trying to understand people's deeper spiritual urges and what that looks like. And then humanist psychology was essentially, how do you 
the the ordinary person that's not deeply wounded, you know, in certain ways, how do you move them to a state where they're flourishing? And so that by the time the 90s came around, that was both in decline a little bit, it, overtaken by certain behaviorist um, strands and, and other strands. You know, you can talk about, like, is Jungian psychology, in a sense, is it positive psychology or is it not? And it's like, well, it could be, it could be applied either way from my perspective. Mm-hmm. So by the time uh, the 90s came around, it wasn't until Martin Seligman came to the APA in, in 97, as I mentioned, he did this big speech on... W- as psychologists, we need to, yes, continue to help people that have these deep psychological wounds and get them back to, you know, a quote-unquote normalized life within society, have them be contributors to society, which was what Freud was all about. But we also have a duty to human, the human race to be able to help them deeply flourish and become happier in the most... Um, well-rounded senses they possibly could. In fact, when I, th- when I talk about this, I think of the, the Greek term, which I'm sure you're both probably familiar with, eudaimonia, which gets translated as happiness. But eu is actually cognate with the Sanskrit su and sukha, um, bliss. Mm, yeah. So it's like you, it's like a blissful, and then daimonia is a word for spirit. So it's like a blissful spirit. That's how I like to translate it. And so if you think about positive psychology ha- as it is now, as it's you know evolved in the past 20 years, it's really trying to take tools from these other ways of being within psychology and then really apply them to helping people flourish in their day-to-day life. And so that's where you get, you know, Seligman's work. And one of the, one of, I'm not recommending this as a book unless you're, you're a therapist or a psychologist, but he has a a great book that catalogs the virtues. Um, So things like wisdom, courage, honesty, in the same way that the DSM-5 does, which is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual. So his whole thing was like, hey, let's, let's work on diagnosing where people can increase these certain values more and it's hmm. it's quite an academic read it's great it, it's uh interesting to me because my uh, uh corporation i work for actually has someone who's like a uh vp of integrity or he's, he's a, a psychologist a mm-hmm. uh, guy named peter ray who was uh, brought in around the time I, I came back to the organization but he leads these courses in the virtues mm-hmm. and i i miss i missed the training uh because uh, of a con- schedule conflict but uh a lot of my cohort uh went through this training mm-hmm. And the intent is to talk about like the Socratic virtues, mm-hmm. um, and in a w- work context of how do you apply this? How do you how do you mm-hmm. bring a more positive kind of frame to uh, you know engaging people, motivating people? And so mm-hmm. it, it's it, I find it very interesting that this kind of line of approach is kind of percolating into even business communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. It, if you're familiar with Adam Grant, he has a um, great book called Give and Take, I believe. And it's all about... He, so he he studied people that he identified as takers, people that are, you know, all about me first. And then he... People that are givers, people that are willing to do anything you know, in work environments. And then they're just kind of the run-of-the-mill people that sometimes give and sometimes take. And what he found was that takers are actually fairly successful to a certain degree and that givers can be not so successful. However, there's a certain percentage of givers that are at the top of being most successful. And what he found was that it's those people that are smart givers, he, he called them. People that are willing to give to people until they start, you know, becoming yeah, this selfish not, takers. Not, yeah, not compulsive givers. Yeah, and yeah. so exactly. And so it's similar to, you know, Trungpa talked about idiot compassion. 
right? So it's like, yeah, we're going to try to be compassionate, but let's not be idiots about it. Right. You know? Let's not be rugged. Let's not be exactly. Like you say that exactly. in your book at one point. I, I'm sure I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trouble with authors. They can never remember what they wrote. I can't. You, somebody asked me, I was on a podcast just a couple of days ago, and he asked me something. So you talk about this in the book, and for the life of me, I couldn't remember. It wasn't until he prodded me again. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, it's yeah. funny to me because sometimes we have people on the show who uh, it's like they start talking, and it's like the book, and I can remember the page, you know? Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's the other That's the other side of things. So, so yeah, why don't we, uh, like, shift, as it were, to the uh, book uh, and uh, kind of tell us about the genesis of the book and tell mm-hmm. us about uh, what you would construe as the like the central message of this uh, mm-hmm. uh, p- work. So the genesis of the book, I had stopped and started writing it for years, and mm. I had a few different chapters, and I thought about it as kind of like, in its initial framework, I was like, okay, what would be like a good, a good Buddhist guide to prosperity or to being in the world? So it was almost like a worldly type yeah. of Buddhist book, like that sort of thing. Um, and it didn't, I never could find the impetus to, to finish it out and to close it. Um, and it wasn't until I came upon the thinking about sort of stories and narratives and how that really informed my thinking about just life, you know, professional life, personal life, things like that. And that was actually the seed that then led to the so, chapters. Going so through. where so where then did this focus on narrative come from? Because, I mean, it's, it's central to your book. Mm-hmm. I mean, but... I, of course, there are places where I've encountered the importance of that mm-hmm. in, in actually a variety of contexts, academic and mm-hmm. other. Um, so tell us about that, how that, how that arose mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, two, two things. So one, when I was studying in my undergrad in psychology, phenomenology really stood out to me. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a fairly um, obscure <laughs> sort of little branch of psychology and philosophy, actually. And mm-hmm. so it's this idea that you can bracket experience in an extreme way. So it's like instead of thinking that I like or dislike this experience, I'm noticing the experience um, and describing that. And so it's a so in the in the psychological context, phenomenology, and then in a Buddhist context, um, there's this idea of different levels of consciousness, which is not which we should probably add water to, and I know Stuart could probably give me some great questions about that. But it's the idea that we're filtering our experience through uh, kinds of consciousness that then create our experience of it. Not not dissimilar to creating a narrative, although it's a bit more um, reflexive in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, um, a notion, I know Rob is referring to uh, at least some of where we both encountered the language of narrative and the, uh, the and and that comes out of some of the latter day work of uh uh Werner Erhardt um in particular like the landmark uh types of courses are very big on you know they're like one of their primary distinctions that they begin with is the you know you've got a narrative and there are the facts mm-hmm. and you know a lot of our condition of our suffering in our lives is when we collapse the uh, uh, narrative and the facts mm-hmm. together and don't actually understand the differentiation because in that lack of di- lack of separation there's like no move- movement at all. Yeah, it's funny because I, I've never done anything with the forum. Right. Um, so it was it's new to me that that was a part of it but somebody one of the first podcasts I was on a few months ago he mentioned that he said oh 
did you get some of this from Landmark Forum? I said, no, you know, I've never done it. And so I remember you both had spoke quite highly of it um, several years ago. Yeah, yeah, so there's, a, I, it, there's a body. I mean, and this is all sort of, speaking of reflexive, I mean, it's like Earhart got a lot of his stuff from Buddhism, too, and, right. uh, and other other traditions and other psychological traditions. So it's like... It's all kind of a mix, but mm-hmm. they but there's a particular spin that they bring. But mm-hmm. there's a uh, business branch of Landmark. Some of the original sort of lieutenants of uh, Earhart uh, formed the Vanto Group, and one of the books that came out of it is, is this thing called the Three Laws of Performance. Hmm. And the idea with that is like the, the first law is that uh, you know p- performance correlates with how situations occur to you. Hmm. How situations occur to you, law number two, arise in language. Mm-hmm. And then law number three is by changing uh, language or change, you know, in language they have a, a very broad sense of what that means. But by changing language, we can affect performance. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about like the, the language of how we frame things, the narrative that we have, uh, basically, as you said, reflexively sort of creates the occurring of our experience and our performance is going to be correlated with that Mm -hmm. so if we don't believe that there's a possibility if we don't believe that there's uh you know a positive outcome in a work situation we're going to tend to kind of march blindly towards uh, what they call a default future Mm -hmm. and uh you know there's going to be kind of a uh kind of a middling outcome Mm -hmm. but if you shift the language and uh you know go into what they call the language of possibility or the language of uh enrollment to have something that you can commit to then suddenly your that almost acts like a magnetic field and mm-hmm. your your perception kind of organizes around that and all of a sudden there's like possibility and you're sort of framed on what can be done as opposed to what can't be done yeah no i think that's exactly it and then the question is how how most effectively to reframe that language and, and yeah. what what tools are available to do that. Yeah, but I, I mean, I just want to add too that that um, my first encounter with with the importance of, of narrative was actually a, in, in an academic context, in the context of academic archaeology, which mm-hmm. was my you know uh, pursuit for a while, and um, there was a, a, a paper from the 90s, I think. Um, which made the po- which made the point that that archaeological uh, hypotheses are basically narratives that we mm-hmm. that we tell each other, mm-hmm. and um, and then the uh, the focus was on understanding how it is that we're that we're as as if almost ensnared by narratives, and mm-hmm. so and so this idea i think has been out there has been out there in different contexts um you know stuart's more familiar with 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 the business side but it's been in academia as mm-hmm. well and um and you know it's uh, it's very congruent um with what with your book mm-hmm. and um and that's one of the interesting things about the book is that you're now that i'm finding out that that you had no uh, apparently no direct contact with any of the um uh examinations of story and narrative that mm-hmm. that i'm familiar with so that means this this is a uh, this to me i i read that as pointing to a much wider kind of um, emerging appreciation for this point mm-hmm. that um um, that I hadn't that I hadn't grasped before because it's interesting to hear that you've had this totally different, you know, uh, uh, 
approach or, mm-hmm. or, or um, stra- trajectory. It's a it's a PhD dissertation waiting to happen. You know, <laughs> a cross cultural <laughs> examination of narrative within uh, exactly. In exactly a wide range of industries. Yeah, it may. Good be, luck uh, out there, whoever. Who's yeah, ever gonna yeah, yeah so, somebody pick that up. <laughs> no, there, there yeah. may there may be some out there already. So, um, <laughs> Probably. Yeah, uh, but uh, so. Is it correct to say then, uh, because when if I look at uh, the shift that you're talking about uh, in the title of the book, is mm-hmm. a recognition of the degree to which narratives, internal narratives, will condition the quality of our experience, and mm-hmm. that there is a possibility in that recognition to, as it were, shift the narrative mm-hmm. and have a different kind of outcome. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I mean, the first step is recognizing that it is simply a narrative, right? Because we walk around thinking that it's our truth, but this is a tr- this is true on the face of it. Whatever, as you're describing these facts, and then we create this narrative. And just getting people, I think, to that point where you, you have a little bit of spaciousness around one's your own experience of the quote unquote truth or, or the world, that in and of itself creates a, a great level of freedom because then you can choose like okay if this is a narrative and not just you know the truth or my you know a fixed level of experience then it opens the possibility that it is able to be shifted in a certain direction and then the question is like what tools are you going to use to most effectively do that and how can you become habituated to that mm-hmm. now going to a spiritual perspective all narratives are by nature going to be limited Right, and so I'll just say that right, and I mentioned that at least at you do one point. No, no, you do you do say that in the book. Yeah, and so I'm, if you really want to become from a, at least a Buddhist, or I would say even a, a Dharmic perspective, if you want to go after a spiritual understanding, you have to be willing to let go of all narratives and what that might look like, or at least or at least um, hold. Recognize the reality of narratives. It's not. It's not like you're suggesting in the book that it's impo- that you can just eject narratives from your life. No, no, you no, wouldn't, no. You wouldn't get out the door. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, right, you know. yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, what I hear you saying is that you're you're you basically have a, an abiding understanding of the relativity of any narrative. Yeah, and that shifts. I mean, practically, that shifts one's likelihood to identify with a with a narrative and it it seems like uh the problem isn't the narrative the problem is uh, identification with the narrative yeah i think that's right i do it, there's a great story um Milarepa, he was this. Uh, he, he's identified by Tibetans as the first Tibetan to attain enlightenment that wasn't already secretly enlightened, right? And so he was this kind of bad guy, who's involved in sorcery and, and all this stuff. And he later, through great trials and tribulations, and working directly with a very famous teacher named Marpa, attained enlightenment. Um, and then he had a student, a, a woman, who was trying to learn meditation, and he gave her this instruction of like, look, just make your mind one with the sky. And she came back after a while and said, well, it's good when the sky is sunny and clear, but then the clouds come and my mind goes into tilt, essentially. And he was like, no, 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 don't be attached to the weather. Be attached to the sky behind it, you know, or not not behind it, that, that supports it. And so it's shifting from that, the weather perspective to the space perspective. And it doesn't make the weather go away. It just allows one to understand that it, the weather doesn't actually stay in the sky. 
So uh, a, a different way of saying that is if you've got to identify with something, you can identify with this, the space behind the weather. Yeah, exactly. And that identification with that, I mean, the different traditions express this differently. I mean, and uh, I think the non-dual traditions, it's like always return your mind to, uh, you know, go back beyond the eye or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and or be the space of awareness as opposed to the content of awareness. Yeah, exactly. No, that's so, exactly it. So so in in psycholo- psychological terms, is, does that mean um, that the mind is, is the place where this spaciousness, where you're trying to cultivate this spaciousness when, within which reside these narratives that you can then juggle, I suppose? Uh, I love coming on the show because you guys have great penetrating questions. This That actually reveals a little bit of a bone that I have to pick with modern psychology, positive or not, right? It's, it's, oh, the, it's the frame, the frame of, of the mind, quote-unquote. So when I'm mm-hmm. talking about the mind, I'm using kind of, let's use uh, capital M, mind. And in Buddhist understanding, mind incorporates everything that I would say Westerners would would call an emotion, would call a thought, but would also call a spiritual experience. So they, they actually mean like a pure form of consciousness. Now we can get into, we could split hairs around that, dual, non-dual, and all of that. Um, whereas I think that some elements of psychology are just now starting to dip toes into that, but it's very, um, I think, discombobulating because it's like, okay. what, what does that actually mean? How might we measure that? Mm-hmm. What, what's the framework of the mind? But if you go back to William James, I mean, he talked a lot about that. That's long, long time ago. And now mm-hmm. I think we're, there's a resurgence of understanding mind as um, in a much broader way. Hmm. But, I didn't, but that, I didn't that, know about that. That's great. But that's mind is being understood as uh, uh, awareness of the the function of awareness and not so much identified with the uh, content, right? Exactly. Because I, exactly. I think yeah. what what I understand you to be saying, and what at least certainly I've observed this when I hear conversations about consciousness, and I was listening to um, a podcast actually today that I, I was I was hearing this kind of distinction. It's a little troubling. It's like there's this kind of muddiness about mind being the uh, cognitive level of operation mm-hmm. and so you're not so you're conscious if you're sort if of you're thinking. Aw- <laughs> yeah if you're thinking or if you're aware of yourself as something uh and uh you're but you're not conscious if there's um you know not you know, there, there's functions in the, in the body that are, you know, not conscious, that we don't have conscious access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's muddy because it seems like there's this priority given to, like, the conceptual recognition or the mapping of myself onto a certain thing mm-hmm. as opposed to just being aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from a Buddhist perspective, you a moment of consciousness actually arises simultaneously with the object of awareness so you can't you can't separate out object of awareness and consciousness itself so now what what you were saying also was like okay how then how can you be aware just of awareness itself and that and that is sort of the trick of the highest level of awareness or or i should say the deepest level of awareness the purest level of awareness something like that is that you just turn the the awareness toward awareness itself and then that becomes the object and that's when there's like a short circuit and a moment of emptiness arises hmm. yeah and it's in a sense that you're not you're not fixated on a thing because you know then then there's not this dichotomy of a subject and an object there's just kind of uh 
presence. Ex- precisely. And, that's and, exactly and it. And that's uh, either that the the clear light, as it were, is uh, is is that is that abiding presence. Exactly. Which, and that abiding presence in the, in the metaphor of like uh, you were describing with Milarepa is the sky. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where there are some teachers that would say, "Look, you know, you've meditated for hours. You become quite proficient at certain kinds of meditation, but all you've actually done is really strengthen your ability to concentrate on an external object, and you've never turned the mirror inward toward itself." Right, and that, and that, in a way, that that gets back to, you know, the application of these techniques in, um, you know, coaching environments or in uh, business environments where uh, someone is using uh, concentration, but they're, you know, it's uh, they're still, in one sense, identified with uh, outcome. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. still uh, uh, squarely in the subject-object uh, 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 formation of mind. Mm-hmm. And I guess the uh, question I have, and, th- th- and this comes up when we, you know, talk with, about mindfulness and business and things like that, is mm-hmm. there's two different schools of thought. You know, there's a one school of thought that says, you know, this is awful because it's like a uh, uh, commodification mm-hmm. of uh, spiritual techniques, and uh, that people talk about mindfulness, mm-hmm. and other people who are like consultants who teach mindfulness who have spiritual practices will assert well yes and uh when someone does the power of the techniques are such that if you start to experience the ability to shift or the relativity of your narratives Mm -hmm. that that in itself opens a door to a greater possibility of engagement with the spiritual practice Mm -hmm. yeah i the mcmindfulness piece and all that it's funny because i was squarely in the camp of hardcore traditionalist right i was like no even to the point not not even like my forget about mindfulness teaching mindfulness in like a corporate thing i was like no unless you're a particular kind of teacher that has like the imprimatur of the tradition and and very specific ways like it shouldn't you should have no business teaching x y or z um and is then it, I, has this come out of a, a relationship to the Dzogchen? Uh, it came out of yeah. It, well, not so much Dzogchen. Dzogchen is funny. They're they're they tend to be a bit different. But it, it came out of a relationship of you know being a traditionalist essentially coming up in a in a tradition, the okay. way that it would effectively be taught okay. in yeah the way that they are articulated in Asia and, and how it's been for you know over a thousand years. But I read a book called The Cool Revolution by Robert Thurman. And this was I, this must have been 15 years ago now. And uh, have either of you read that? The no, Cool Revolution. No. It's really interesting. He he talks about how the West isn't going to adopt Buddhism the way other countries have in the past. Like there there isn't a king that's going to say like, "Hey, look, let's all do this and like <laughs> let's translate all the sutras and we're going to do this." Instead, he talks about it it's just like this slow kind of boil of yoga and meditation and mindfulness and all these things. I mean, I, I was at a party last night, and a lady had a mala, a very particular kind of mala, and she knew enough about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like that those concepts coming in slowly, I think, is a valid way to transmit spiritual teachings. And, and I'll give another one more... Um, dimension to it, maybe, is that if you people think of, like, let's say, use Tibet, for instance... Okay, they're they're really practicing. They've been practicing for over a thousand years, and you know they're of course spiritual masters in Tibet, as there are, I think, in America. And 
if you go there and you talk to the average person off the street, their their understanding of Buddhism is going to be like, let's we're going to make an offering, we're going to light some incense, we're going to try to do good things in the hope that we'll attain something in the afterlife. You know, maybe a heaven, maybe a higher rebirth, whatever it is. But they don't understand these, even what we've been talking about today, these complex kind of philosophical pieces. And they're certainly not practicing, you know, at the highest level that some of the lamas are. So how is that different than the person that wears a mala partly for just... Uh, you know, to remember a certain sense of spirituality. And I would say it's not. It's not at all. So, like, th- I think it's become a almost a successful transmission of the Dharma to the West. There, there's, in the Fourth Way tradition, um, there's this notion of uh, A influences, B influences, and C influences. Hmm. And um, A influences are the influences of life. It's the stuff of life, you know. It's like your paycheck, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas that come out of life, like the latest sports uh, uh, score on a football game or something like that would be an A influence. Mm -hmm. B influences um, speak to, they're they're of life, they're kind of constructed in the uh, language of life, but they arise from sea influences, which are uh, transmissions that come from, as, as they call it, the conscious circle of humanity, which mm-hmm. uh, 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 arises from outside of life. Mm-hmm. And so in that, using that analogy, it's like a, a mala is a bee influence in that there, there's a context at where it comes from. And even if someone is taking it, there's a little bit of something, and they're valuing mm-hmm. something. So mm-hmm. there's something in them that is sort of yearning for a connection with something outside of life. Mm-hmm. And so, in that sense, uh, I guess you could reasonably uh, say that anything that functions as a bee influence uh, has the potential of kindling that spark. Mm-hmm. And that if you know, if one is uh, using that, or you know, if you're if you're in the business of generating bee influences, then more power to you. That uh, mm-hmm. that the, you know, it's like throwing seeds on the ground. Some seeds will, you know, uh, take root. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I'm thinking also of people that I know that do either yoga or martial arts. And some people, like, I think that yoga in the West has obviously become a system of exercise, right? And I think that if you talk to certain practitioners at after months and years, they want to, quote-unquote, deepen their practice. And they may not even be sure exactly what that means. They don't necessarily want to become Hindu, but they're going to go to India, and they're going to study the spiritual aspects of yoga. Same thing with uh, Japanese martial arts, Chinese martial arts. It leads to an interest in the spirituality, not for everybody, but for a few. And I think that that's net positive. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, we've had. There are some very sophisticated um, Americans now uh, coming up in that in that arena who are, you know, uh, uh, great teachers and potential teachers of of these sorts of things. But I'm also thinking of, uh, you know, we, I've uh, one of our spiritual friends was a was a guy who was influenced by the uh, Indian traditions and and his students would put sacred art throughout their houses. Sometimes in, you know, we'd visited this this 13th century farmhouse in France with Indian, you know, exquisite Indian sacred art, well lit. Um, And then they had a kid running around, you know, a little boy running around. And and it's just, it's an environment that creates a, a kind of 
mood that I think is is conducive right. mm-hmm. to creating some to to it doesn't it doesn't mean that that kid's going to for example is is going to grow up to do anything in particular but absent that um, you know, other another kid in the next 13th century farmhouse isn't going to have the uh, uh, the information. Right. All right. What well, a lucky kid! Yeah. 13th century farmhouse and exquisite Indian <laughs> exactly. art. Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Well, on that note, we're going to take a, a break at the hour. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. I'm your host Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Nick Egan, Ph.D., an award-winning leader and executive coach who uses his deep understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy to encourage personal and organizational growth. His newly released book, Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, is the basis of our conversation today. Nick regularly leads expeditions to various Asian countries. He holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist philosophy and also had a stint as a co-host on The Mystical Positivist because he has a great radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> not, not just because of that. Mostly, though. <laughs> <laughs> we'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Bach Sonatas and Partitas Volume 1 performed by Chris Teeley on mandolin. This piece is the Grave Movement from the Partita Number no. 2 in A minor, BWV 1003.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with Nick Egan, Ph.D., an award-winning leader and executive coach who uses his deep understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy to encourage personal and organizational growth. His newly released book, Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, is the basis of our conversation today. Nick regularly leads expeditions to various Asian countries. He holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist philosophy and had a stint as co-host of The Mystical Positivist earlier this decade. So I want to get back into Shift, and um, I want to ask you if there was any shift. You you described in the first hour that, that you had... Uh, been working on the book for a while, mm-hmm. and um, I'm curious about any shifts in how you saw the goal for this book. It's it, it, in the book. The book itself is is very clearly laid out. It is all of a piece, and yet you were describing how you had written a few chapters along the way, mm-hmm. and then you you did. Uh, my understanding is you you got into the coaching, the training for to be a coach, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and then this book appears. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering about shifts along the way in your understanding of the aim that you had for the book. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I'll tell you the biggest um, shift <laughs> <laughs> that I had was getting really clear that it wasn't I wasn't writing a Buddhist book. Mm-hmm. That is a huge. That allowed me to shift, ch- change my own narrative about mm-hmm. what I could put in there and what I couldn't put in there, what yeah. my target audience was. And yeah, so yeah. when I moved from, look, I'm not writing a Buddhist book. I'm writing a book to be able to help people in their professional and personal journey. And yes, it's informed by my background of of Buddhist studies and Buddhist practice. Mm-hmm. Um, that freed up a lot of bandwidth for me to take bits and pieces of different things that. Um, I think apply to Buddhism, but aren't necessarily within the Dharma, and that was a huge relief. I mean, I still I still have this feeling of relief when I talk about that because it's it's such a responsibility to be an upholder of a tradition, right? And if that's well, what you were talking your... about that at the end of the previous hour, and 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 I could feel I could I could feel the almost weight of it. Yeah, as you were speaking. It, it's serious, and and that's the reason why I don't. Even though I do have, I mean, I'm authorized to teach um, within my own tradition certain elements, and I don't typically do that very often. I certainly don't promote it, right? I, I do do it occasionally if I'm brought in or something, but it's not my, it's not how I'm making money. It's not my actual work, and mm-hmm. it's very intentional because I think it's a quite risky proposition for me personally, right? Um, well, well, ris- ris- risky proposition in. Uh, teaching the Dharma or risky proposition and sort of in mixing uh, the teaching of Dharma with the professional uh, activity? Certainly the latter. Certainly I mean, the that, latter. That, that I understand. Mi- mixing that, that, mixing that, that, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Certainly that. And so I've always shied away from that Dhar- Dharma teacher as vocation. Right, right, right. So, but I also think, I mean, teaching Dharma... There is, it is a bit risky in some ways. You, you really can set people on a path um, 
that may not be the right time or the right place for them or whatever it is. And I just, there's a, a bit of hesitance on my end. Um, and maybe that goes to my lack of spiritual understanding, but I mean, I, I guess I, I, uh, I, we don't have to make much of that point. I just, I just, that, that, Seems a little surprising, uh, you know, coming from you because uh, you have a, a confidence in your expression, and uh, I grant that actually dealing with someone and actually being responsive to uh, the skillful means they need in that moment mm-hmm. is is certainly a challenge. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, it's kind of like anything: how do you how do you become a master without actually doing you know yeah. practicing? Yeah, I, I think maybe the confidence that you're hearing is. Uh what I used to say about some of my professors, right? Which is often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> so, Ooh, ouch. Yeah. Nobody in particular. <laughs> right. Well, right. Yeah. Well, but, but, you know, like we say, we, we say in control engineering, when you deal, like, with a rocket ship, it's always off course. Right. Which is always constantly correcting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll right. yes, so, yes. But, uh, <laughs> well, well, uh, but that takes us back to the book shift, which um, is uh, <laughs> no shift. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Uh, uh, which which has uh, uh, seven chapters plus an intro and conclusion, but mm-hmm. but um, the the chapter refer to transformations of something. Mm-hmm. So the first one is transform your story. Mm-hmm. The next one is transform fixation. The mm-hmm. next one is transform difficulty. So mm-hmm. so there are these uh, these topical areas that 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 you focus on. Mm-hmm. And and the story one is at the beginning because that's kind of central to the rest of yeah. um what you're what you're up to. And um uh how did you how did you decide to frame i mean i understand the first, you know transform your story is mm-hmm. necessarily the beginning how did you come up with the order mm-hmm. of these chapters i mean how, uh, it it reads quite seamlessly mm-hmm. um and um but i know f- from my own work that seamless writing doesn't generally just uh, appear as a gift from the gods for most of us. How did that process work for you? Yeah, it certainly wasn't a gift from the gods for me. It was definitely a lot of effort. Um, But I think it's just, when I think about the chapters and the order and all of that, it really is sort of main practice and then applications, which is a very, very Buddhist way of thinking about things, right? So if you, this is a, a little known fact about um, most dharma and most and sutras and Buddhist teachings in general, the title of all the sutras is actually enough to understand the rest of the sutra for the highest mm-hmm. level of student, right? M- mm-hmm. Not most people. I'm talking about you know kind of non-ordinary people, but many many teachers I've had have said that. Like, look, actually, all you need is the title, and then you can understand everything going from that if you're mm-hmm. at the highest level. And then it, oh, if you don't understand that, then read the whole sutra. Oh, if you don't understand that, then go to the commentary. So what I was trying to do was get the essential and then walk through very specific applications and use mm-hmm. examples and use stories, things that people can grab a hold of. Because at the end of the day, like I was talking about earlier, it's not it's a really about application. I want I want it to be as actionable as possible for the person off the street. Mm-hmm. I you know, I, I call them you know, Buddhist sympathizers sometimes. People that are you know, they're not they're not <laughs> Buddhist. They don't they think Buddhism might be cool or maybe they read a book or something like that and then they're really on almost like a personal development journey. And so I want somebody to be able to pick this up and have, and take something away from it. That's really interesting. I, I mean, I, I, uh, 
I'm imagining, you know, there's the, we've had a number of people on the show about the uh, spiritual but not religious with, you know, with that, with that orientation mm-hmm. and uh, exploration of that. And <laughs> in, in a way, that sounds like one variation, mm-hmm. uh, what you just described as Buddhist sympathizers. Mm-hmm. In other words, people who are not going to adopt the path mm-hmm. uh, or any of the Buddhist, the various Buddhist paths, or have no intention to do so anyway, but, but they respect that there's something there. Mm-hmm. And that's... Um, um, that's a particular flavor of uh, uh, spiritual, but not religious. Does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think it makes sense, and I think that's right. I think that's it. And I think people, even the design of the book is even if you're not um, particularly spiritually inclined, it should be actionable from a psychological perspective, which is why I try to weave in these things. Now, that being said, I mean, I'm sure that there are people that are, you know, anti- all things <laughs> that even have the hint of a dharma particular sure, you know sure, flavor sure, sure. or even a positive psychology flavor so mm. it wouldn't necessarily but, appeal to them. but even these days uh, uh you can find secular or atheistic meditation um you know with mm-hmm. you know people there's the techniques themselves and the things that you recommend i i think are are non controversial in the sense that they're not uh uh Driving, or they're not there. A theistic claim or a, a philosophical claim is not necessary to applying them. Right. And yeah. the nice thing about the chapters is that you, at the end, you have a, a practice, you know, so that people can at get the end a, of each chapter, yeah, they, sure. people can get a, an experiential flavor of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I have to ask uh, whenever I see like a number seven, like, did you decide on seven? First, you know, it's, it's a yeah, I did. Okay. Not it was yeah. I. It's, so it's not. I count the conclusion so, so, of the and the intro. So it's it was nine. Yeah, it was yeah, nine. Yeah, yeah. So that's, so that's like what a, I. Good, yeah, good fourth way. Number. I did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I chose the number first and then broke it down into chapters. Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah. I, I mean, I've, uh-huh. been, I've cool. done. I've done. That's that cool. Too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand. That's funny. You're the only. You you picked up my secret. Uh, uh, my I secret mean, numerology piece. Yeah. Well, that's not. I was thinking about the song. You know. Motion is accomplished in six stages, and the seventh brings return. And the, the you know the seventh chapter is uh, you know transforming the ordinary, and that seems like the the whole return of the punchline of yeah. the previous chapters. Exactly. So uh, you but, know, I think the structure is very nice. I, wait, I, before we go on, I want to just chime in. I, I not in this book, but I've had a fantasy for a long time about creating a book that was for the spiritual but not religious. And then at the very end, the last chapter, if you read the last chapter, being like, nope, now you're a Buddhist. <laughs> like surprise! Sorry. You pick this up as a spiritual but not religious person, and now you're committed forever. Yeah, like as if I that like you it. know. Yeah, right. Wouldn't it be? I think it would be a bestseller. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Don't read this book. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Too late. You're enlightened now. Sorry. Exactly. So, so there's a, a question I wanted to ask about because you, you brought this up in the uh, you know when we were talking a little bit about. Um, uh, techniques for uh, effectively reframing one's uh, narrative, and um, one of the things that I, I guess I was reflecting on as I was reading the different chapters is that some of what you're describing um, is in the category of, and this is, this isn't a critique; it's just a, a more of an observation. It's, it's in the category. It's a lot easier to describe than it is to uh, embody. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you know, in a sense, you know, when I think about spiritual practice, spiritual community, regular practice, like regular meditation practice, which you kind of do come back to in the last chapter, mm-hmm. uh, 
there's a certain something or a certain quality of energy that has to be cultivated in my experience to enable or to potentiate the possibility of having the perspective to step back from the narrative mm-hmm. and to you know in a, in a way you could say you know uh that when attention's at a certain level we can't help but be identified and so part of the practice of concentration and meditation is to uh, uh strengthen the muscle of attention such that we have the capability of actually being present to the, the the flow of the narrative and then have the possibility of actually uh, not being identified for a moment and to make other choices. So it seems like a challenge because, uh, and it's probably a challenge in coaching and in spiritual teaching uh, mm-hmm. because it requires a kind of energy mm-hmm. and it requires a kind of commitment, in my experience, to cultivate a flexibility or fluidity on the along the lines of uh what you're describing and so it's kind of tough it's like in, a, in a way it's 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 like um you mentioned earlier about like uh business development courses and consulting and things like that they'll have a, you know people will go to a class or they'll go to a seminar get a real boost because they're kind of partaking of the group energy and the energy mm-hmm. of the uh the teacher and then once you're out of that context, it, it, it starts to degrade again. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this actually with Landmark. Landmark's mm-hmm. solution to this is uh, this uh, obsessive, you know, pestering you to take the next course. Mm-hmm. And that's good for a business, but it's also good for keeping a context alive so people right. can keep practicing the stuff that they're talking about. So yeah. it's kind of like a, a, a funny, <laughs> yeah, good-bad uh, associated with their business model. So I'm, I'm wondering how you respond to that. Like, how do you, you know... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, first, you're exactly right. I mean, that's, and I'll talk about how I think about it um, in a little bit. But, I, and I do mention that in the, in the, I think the last chapter, and maybe a little bit sooner as well, that these, I, I like to think about it in terms of exercise, right? It's like a book, if this, if this were a book about physical exercise, yeah, you can, you can go to the gym one time and understand kind of the theory behind exercise, and that might open your eyes to certain things, but if you don't exercise on a regular basis, there's not going to be a lot of benefit that comes from it. And certainly when you're faced with whatever sport you're trying to play based on the exercise. Or musical. Or musical or whatever, you're not going to be able to perform. And so I like to think about it in terms of how quickly are you able to do that? Like most people actually can can do this in retrospect, right? So if I'm talking to somebody, and this is where coaching can so, sort of come in. So if I'm talking to somebody about a situation, um, a professional situation where they feel kind of stuck, and then it, we really go into it via coaching and try to examine it, um, in retrospect, in hindsight, I think they're like, yeah, okay, I see now how my narrative is shaping my experience. And then we talk about, well, how might you be able to, to respond differently? Very, very different than in real time, right? So in real time, it's like, oh, this person is annoying the blank out of me. How, how am I going to respond to that? How can I shift my perspective or have the presence of mind, mm-hmm. the, what you were talking about, the energy, to be able to do this, to be able to shift that? Now... Then there's even a step kind of preempting that. How is it? How can I be all the time to where this isn't such a bother or such an annoyance or such a challenge to me? So there, I look at it as a spectrum of those three three things. One is like in hindsight, the other one is in the moment, and the other one is preemptively. Um, and there is no question in my mind that without some kind of regular practice, I would call it a concentration practice, not necessarily a spiritual practice. You will not there. You will not have the presence of mind 
to do this very effectively. And I, I talk about this with some of my clients. Like, look, if you want to be really good at soccer, you've got to have good cardio first, right? And you can kind of get them playing both at the same time. But if you go to the gym and run, you know, X number of miles every day, you're going to be that much better when you go out and actually do the complex skills of soccer. Yeah. That, yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. And uh, I would agree that... Uh, their uh, meditative technique, whether it's a concentration technique or even, I think in this case, uh, even a, a kind of a spacious awareness technique is kind mm-hmm. of useful for uh, dealing with uh, narrative that mm-hmm. it doesn't have to have the full context of the spiritual tradition mm-hmm. to be effective for what you're pointing to in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. It's not... Yeah. I wouldn't say it's completely divorced from a tradition, but it isn't necessary to have that context to be useful. Got it. Well, um, let me ask you about a specific uh, story. I, I mean, I'll, I'll back up first and just say you use some nice uh, personal anecdotes to illustrate stuff in the book, and and those are those, those are very very helpful. The one that. Um, I'm going to invite you to uh, talk to us about is uh, the story of the New York couple on the. Um, <laughs> oh, that, I guess that was a great I, I wasn't yeah. sure if it was Tibet or something. Some, yeah, someplace yeah, like yeah. that. It was yeah, it was Eastern Tibet. Actually. Eastern Tibet. Yeah. Okay. So and they were not very skilled, I guess, or knowledgeable about camping in general. Right. And certainly not in extreme circumstances, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Maybe you can tell the story. Yeah, maybe you should just tell the story. Sure. It was a... So, it's funny. This... So, names and and, uh, specifics are slightly changed to protect the innocent. I'll I'll go that far. Excellent. Yeah. And so, um, throughout the book, I should say. And... These two particular people, it, they were having a hard time with a zipper on a on a tent that was just pulled tight, right? So we were we were traveling in a very very all of Tibet is rural, but in extremely rural conditions, and you think nomads, you know that sort of thing, yak herders, and they were very unhappy and complaining. I'd say you know fairly constantly about this tent, and and I tried to explain to them like, look, it's this is how the tent is designed. This is you know very this is traditional with mountaineering of of a sort, and it just was not registering. And then, then finally, um, with somebody that I was co-guiding the trip with, we came up with the idea to just tell them you know that hey, look, see this tiny village not far away. Um, which was literally no more, I'd say, than seven to ten, ten little homes. There's a zipper repairman there, and we're going to take down the tent, and while you're off on your day's excursion, we're going to have one of the porters take it up there, and they're going to fix it. So we told the Tibetan porters that we were with, look, look, take down the tent. Once we leave, put it back up, and then and we'll just tell them. And so sure enough, the rest of the time, I mean, it was a 15-day trip. This was on day, I, I would say, six so the rest of the time, they're extremely pleased that, number one, we went the extra mile, but number two, that they their perception of the tent and how it opened and functioned was fixed. Now, I'll, this is an interesting... It's interesting you brought up that anecdote because that is the single most um, reviewed part of the book. Really? Yeah, because I was so worried that I was making them seem foolish, right? Mm-hmm. When it, and us seem like clever, you know, that we, we figured it out and, and all that. Which I have a different take on it, but go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> and so and I didn't want that to be the case at all because we all do this, right? We all mm-hmm. have our, our tent zippers that just annoy the heck out of us. And actually, it's just our narrative that's, like, bothering us about mm-hmm. it. They're, they're perfectly functional. And so... 
I was worried that that would come across, so I rewrote it several times to, to try to get it right. And I think hopefully it's gentle enough and getting to the point. I'm not trying to use them as uh, the scapegoat. No, no, um, that didn't. I, I didn't pick that up. It's more. It's more. I mean, it was an illustration of how uh, being stuck with a story as opposed to a zipper is um, is something that um, can be shifted. But in this case, I, I was led to this idea from Buddhism of provisional versus ultimate truth. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. In fact, there's... Um, so provisional also, you know, you can talk about relative truth versus yeah. ultimate truth. Same, same meaning. Right. There's a great story about... Um, Ah, it's in the Lotus Sutra. So it's in the Lotus Sutra, one of the crowning glories of the Mahayana tradition. <laughs> and Buddha himself says, look, if the house is on fire, I, I'll talk to some people and I'll say, look, the house is on fire. Get out. And some, if there are kids in there, and they maybe they get scared. And so I'll say, look, to some of them, there are toys outside. Go out there. To some of them, I'll say there's candy outside. To some of them, mm -hmm. I use whatever method necessary to get them out of the burning house. And so that's very similar to... I, I, I'm hoping the essence of both the book and that particular story. Right. Yeah. And and so, um, but um, I'm 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 intrigued that you use this um, um, because in a way, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's almost as if you're teaching people how to apply this within the context of their own mind or consciousness or something like that. They, in other words, um, uh, how, do you, how do you release a, um, a, a really clenched um, grip when, you know, so, sometimes, <laughs> I, I'm revealing the age of my body here, but it's, I go in the garden and I'm working, I'm holding a trowel for three hours, and then at the end of the three hours, I can't open my fingers right away and it's kind of kind of like that mm -hmm. and i have to and i have to sort of treat my body gently mm -hmm. and and encourage the um the release to happen mm -hmm. and and in a way that's what you're that's what you're illustrating in in the story right mm -hmm. so so um it invites me to ask you because of this coaching work that you do mm -hmm. how you do that with with people in you know in that in that personal relationship which is a which is as i understood what you're saying earlier a, a deepening and extension of the strategies that you're putting mm -hmm. promoting in the book yes um, I'm reminded of a few things. One, one of my my main teacher, Nam Tupton Rinpoche, he he <laughs> will get this question often. Like, how do you let go? His his one of his main things that he speaks about is um, sort of just letting go of thought, letting go of the mind, letting go deeper and deeper and deeper to a very very um, subtle and profound way. And one time, somebody asked him that question, like, how do you let go? And he literally picked up keys from the side table and just held them in his hand and flipped over his hand and then dropped them. And he said, it's that easy. I don't know how else to tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so in, on, in some ways, I think that is the piece that isn't beyond instruction, right? I mean, you can give somebody a step-by-step, -step, very subtle mm -hmm. way to do it, but you, at the end of the day, they have to let go. And, and some people just are clinching their entire lives and think that they're letting go because they're visualizing letting go when in reality, like there's no actual movement of the hand. Right. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so one, I, I want to say it's like 
maybe not possible <laughs> to teach mm-hmm. somebody to do that. And then, sure. but then the other thing is, while you were talking, I was thinking, oh, if you were my coaching client, that's a great. And not like you have a process by which you can physically and, and tactilely actually let go of some of a time when you're seized up. And yeah. then so my question to you, if you were my client, I would say, well, where where else in your life can you identify that you're feeling that same constriction mm-hmm. and how might you apply that same process to those pieces? And then we can go deeper into that. And what does that look like? And, and the magic of coaching is actually just getting very, very specific so if you say, look, um, you know, it's in my business, so I'm practicing, so with the bookstore, and I have this certain area that I'm, you know, really, it's bothersome to me, it keeps me up at night, and then, okay, well, what is that, what exactly is the narrative around that, and then how can we use these same things that have helped you in the garden to apply them to your business, and so that's, that's the thing, it's not, it's not prescriptive, like I'm not working off of a worksheet or a workbook, which I think is fine for some people, you know, some coaches do that, they essentially have like a playbook, but then they just work out of but it, I think I it's most powerful when it's coming from your own experience so, so I'm, I'm interested in this question because um, it gets again uh, maybe part of my response to the book was um, if I had anything that I was I was sort of wrestling with was that it felt like a lot of the prescription mm-hmm. was entering in at the uh, cognitive level mm-hmm. so so conversation narrative counter narrative and things like that and there's a you know if i use the fourth way model you know the fourth way model you know looks at the uh human psychology as mental center emotional center uh moving and instinctive center and you can divide that you know the sub centers if you wish but you know you got these the three basic operating systems that are uh, uh going on and what I find is a lot of the you know, the function of identification is an emotional uh, 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 there's emotional energy that's sort of enlivening a, a conceptual framework, and that um, you know in in our tradition you know there's various notions of either shocks um, or uh, you know we use uh, the the joke of uh, follow your dread, but what what that really is is like move with your attention you know be present to the resistance that's coming up and then take the step that is in the uh you know in that resistance because when you go over that sort of activation energy you kind of get to the other side it's kind of like the the force field goes away Mm -hmm. and similarly you know uh another notion in the fourth way is uh and you kind of touch on this a little bit in the um uh uh uh, the one of the chapters is you know uh, con- intentional suffering or conscious suffering, but what that the way that's uh, uh, related is that the, the the willingness to be present to the displeasing manifestations of others towards yourself is conscious suffering without without being in reaction or without without expressing the reactivity, and so I think you touch on that where you know like putting attention on someone who annoys you. You're actually changing your relation to them and, and things like that. Move that energy at the emotional level. Mm-hmm. So, like that section of the book where you talk about that with people, I think uh, r- rang really, you know, powerfully to me. Mm-hmm. Shifting the narrative can work, except that you know it's like uh, there has to be something in the heart that gets shifted for that shift to really uh, uh, have uh, you know permanence or have mm-hmm. have stability yeah yeah uh, no i agree with that your last point and 
that's funny that you bring that up. It's very perceptive of you. Um, I made a, a conscious choice to base the exercises only on what in the Tibetan tradition is like, it's called analytical meditation. Yeah. So it's walking through, it's not meditation like I'm just sitting focusing on my breath or an object of awareness. It's walking through a step-by-step procedure to be able to change your cognitive patterns around things. And I did that for two reasons. One, I think that it's more rarely discussed within Buddhist books and not even self-help books in general. I think that there is a great value to these analytical meditations. And then two, just my own personal proclivity. That was my early days kind of exposure and what was, I think, most beneficial for me on the path and both, you know, personally, professionally, spiritually, all of that, being able to really think through these things and then applying that later. But I think, but you're absolutely right. Like understanding how emotion plays in, how somatics play in. I mean, there's different, some of the most, some of the best methodologies I think only work with somatics actually. Like I'm thinking about psychology, like somatic psychology, they're literally just looking at like, okay, where is pain in the body? And in coaching too, it's not a lot of coaching that I do, but I'm certainly trained in it. It's like, okay, where is that located in your body? How can we expand that? And just by being aware of it, you, as you put it, you can kind of move past it or it diminishes the, the force behind yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, then in some ways that the, the somatic approaches, because uh, that, that com- comes up in a, a spiritual context when you're mm-hmm. dealing with someone who has a uh, you know strong identification or their mind is sort of uh, wheeling out of control and, mm-hmm. and they just need immediate help, you know, mm-hmm. bringing your attention into the body. Mm-hmm is a powerful antidote to that mm-hmm. and the way i put it, think of it in a cognitive framework is that it when your attention's in the body and you're dealing just at an energy level then your uh uh identification you're you're, you're not identifying the same way because mm-hmm. it, it's no longer the, the story isn't active it's just it, there's just energy yeah and if your attention on the energy then then suddenly it's manageable in a way that's different than if it is a psychological story or a narrative mm-hmm. no I, I think that's right and i think that um the mechanism that makes that work from a buddhist perspective is actually that the mind can only be aware of one sensory input at a time and that when we in our day-to-day experience when we're seeing when we we think that we're seeing we're hearing we're smelling all at the same time right that all the senses are kind of firing but actually it's just very rapid movement between the senses that puts together this the movie of our experience and you can really experience this i mean people that have been meditating for years will get to the point where they can kind of slow it down and if you're very aware of a certain object of awareness other things kind of drop by the wayside like for instance you didn't hear whatever it was that was in the background because you're you're focused on the, the feeling of your breath or something like that well, let me uh, let me shift to another uh, uh, question here, and mm-hmm. and um, I really appreciated what you had to say earlier about um, how letting go of the story that you had to write a Buddhist book. That's not how you put it, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sort of reinterpreting it. Was this was was the key to moving forward to to completing the the, um, the project? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and and that's reassuring to me because um because you know i i couldn't help but but think as i was reading through the book and i and i and i had an expectation that it was going to be mm-hmm. a little more buddhist than mm-hmm. it turned out or maybe a lot more buddhist than it, turn, than it turned out to be as i'm reading the book because the one thing that that um that stuck out for me is is the non-problemite problematization of success mm-hmm. versus failure mm-hmm. in other words 
you're you know you're writing a book to help people be more successful mm-hmm. you know that's the that's clear and um it, it, i'm not offering that as a criticism at all mm-hmm. but you're you're um explaining where you know what what your goal ended up being when you when it came together for mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. uh is consistent with that mm-hmm. and um and um and furthermore the book is very good at oh. at um Moving the reader through that, through, through the trajectory, of through, through the trajectory of exploring what that means and how to do that. Thank you, I appreciate that. It's funny. You, so you're not wrong, right? I, I want to put that out. You're not wrong in the sense that, like, look, Buddhism as a path, and, and Shakyamuni Buddha himself, historical Buddha. You know, his most of his followers were well. No, I shouldn't say most. Many of his followers were monks, and he's like, "Look, come, give up, give up all the trappings of life, and you know, come attain enlightenment." If you're a real, if you're a serious spiritual practitioner. Now, of course, many of his greatest students were actually kings, and that's a whole different. We can talk about that too, um, or worldly people or successful people. But there's so on the one hand, you have this this teaching essentially broadly that's like look if you really want to attain enlightenment you must give up essentially everything mm-hmm. right with the monk's way but actually and then and then on the, the flip side of that is like to some of the kings and some of the Tantra tradition some of the Dzogchen tradition it was like well actually you don't have to physically give up everything you have to give up your attachment to those things yeah. right and then there's transformational power within that and that's a different thing but you're still kind of it's the narrative of like giving up You've got to mm-hmm. give up your attachment to the world, and there's good reason for that. But actually, within Buddhism, because he Buddha taught for so long, there are very clear um, teachings. I mean, within mm-hmm. the sutras, that it's like if you want to be more successful, meaning like ha- be wealthy, you should do X, Y, and Z. I mean, one one time he told once all of his followers, I'm forgetting the name of the sutra. It was like you should be saving half of your income. That was his teaching. You should save half of your income so that way you can be wealthy when you're old. Yeah, and yeah. that's no. not really leading to like any kind of enlightenment. So Buddha himself really understood like people are at different levels and like a form right. of success is a kind of happiness, not of course permanent and not on the scale of enlightenment, but that is valid. So it is a Buddhist book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Secretly. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you wrote the book you wanted you you want to now write again. Yeah. Exactly. It's gonna be Why My Last Book Was Buddhist by Nick. <laughs> it's gonna be a bestseller, no doubt. <laughs> well, we're we're getting towards the end, but but you in your final chapter you you uh Bring up this concept, uh, this Tibetan word, uh, and say, tell me if I'm saying it wrong. Depa. Yeah, that's right. Depa. Yeah, Depa. exactly. Um, having both confidence and faith. So maybe that's a good way to sort of uh, bring our conclusion of your book to, uh, or your, your our discussion of your book to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, in Tibetan terminology, depa is it means both confidence and faith, and it's interesting because I think in the modern West is this idea that faith means blind faith right mm-hmm. that i that you can never that if you know something then it's not faith anymore right it's <laughs> then you then you know it mm-hmm. and but in the tibetan way of thinking that's not the case at all and they, they make it very clear that blind faith is the lowest kind of faith or confidence and that actually when you experience something then that's a whole different kind of faith and it's a it's a much more important sort of faith and there there are teachers that say look 
I was operating on that kind of blind faith, that blind confidence, until I had the experience. And now that I've had the experience, I could, there could be a thousand Buddhas that manifest out of nowhere telling me I'm wrong, and they're not going to change my mind because I, I have experienced it myself, right? And so it's that level of confidence as experience that I think is the tr- highest form of faith. And that's a little bit different than... Uh, what I think is a kind of a problematic notion of like let's just live in blind faith throughout yeah. our entire life, right. right? But I mean that means that the faith in this in this sense is uh, for the things I haven't experienced. Uh, faith for me functions as an openness to mm-hmm. or a, or a valuation of a direction, but the confidence is is like born out of actual seeing. You know, in a spiritual context, seeing the results of the teaching uh, made actual within my own experience. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's exactly it. And and being open to, I would say it's almost like a faithful skepticism, mm-hmm. right? You you yeah. want to and and Buddha talked about that. He's like, don't take my word for it. Try it out yourself. And if it works, then adopt it. And if it doesn't, yeah. then discard it. Yeah, I mean that that for us in the fourth way tradition, that that's, that's sort of like the the the, the ground brick of the uh, foundation is. Uh, don't don't take anyone's word for this. You know yeah. that, that you have to make it real. If you do not if you do not make the effort to make something real and verify in your own experience the efficacy of the teaching, there's nothing there. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's very uh, it's very tenuous. I want to Do we have a little bit of time? Because yeah, I want to speak to that just for another minute. That there is nothing there, and and yet. It's also somewhat beneficial because I there's just a quick story. One a llama that was not my teacher, but I, I heard from somebody. There was a guy that was walking around with this big. He was wearing robes. He was wearing a mala, big necklace, and like making a big show of like the costume aspect of dharma, which is not something that Western Buddhists typically do. Mm-hmm. And it was infuriating these other students. And they went to the llama. And he's here in California. I won't say who. And they were like, "Look, you got to talk to this guy. Like, tell him to take off the damn robes and put down the mala." You know. And, and the llama said, "Actually." right now that's all the dharma he has if i do that i'm taking away his whole dharma so like Mm. let him have that and and check your own mind your own annoyance on that you know and i thought that's a very profound teaching not to not to discredit others faith even if it is blind well it goes it goes again to you know your description of being at a party and seeing a woman wearing a mala Mm -hmm. and you know it doesn't matter that she may not be a 30-year practitioner of meditation Mm -hmm. there's something that that means for her mm-hmm. that uh, uh, is a spark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, how do people uh, find out about your uh, wonderful work and your wonderful book? And your, and your no doubt wonderful coaching. Thank yes. you. Thank you very much. The best way is to go to NickEganPhD.com and you can check out all my work and have some articles on there. And do, you, do you still keep the other website going? Uh, no, I don't. That is, I've <laughs> tried to consolidate all websites into one. So yeah. now Nick Egan. Uh, NickEganPhD.com. Yeah, nothing else. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, I assume... Uh, uh, Given uh, the age that uh, you do things remotely, you don't have to be in uh, Sonoma County or California, so Zoom or Skype or whatever. I use Zoom for the most part, Zoom and actually just phone, and I have clients all up and down the West Coast and the East Coast, so anywhere. Don't yet have any uh, international clients, but yeah, you'd be surprised at the power of these technologies. They kind of drift away and and allows for some intimate coaching. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, we've, We've just been... Amazed at how how well things like uh, uh, Zoom is particularly nice because you can get multiple people on mm-hmm. a uh, call that 
that's enabling kinds of relations that uh, with, with where you can have these active relationships with people mm-hmm. and not be present with them. Although I will say that um, when you punctuate that with moments of physical presence, there is something that is transmitted body to body, which mm-hmm. is why we're glad you're in the studio here. That is uh, real, distinct, mm-hmm. powerful, and uh, also part of the equation. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think first and foremost would be physical, face-to-face. Yeah. yeah. Well... Thank you. Uh, as always, uh, you know, it has uh, been a treat and uh, uh, great fun to have you in the studio and talking to you again. It's good to connect again. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here, and uh, I miss coming on, so you, we'll have to do it again soon. I would, I would love that, and uh, so thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. In fact, I was thinking uh, we could do an online coaching session. Really? Yeah, do 45 minutes. If you're willing to, we could talk oh, about it ahead absolutely. of time. But I think it might be really interesting for listeners. That's that's yeah. a really interesting idea. Yeah, yeah that, like that would this. be fun. Uh, that, uh, that would yeah. be... Uh, I'd, li- I'd like to see that. Yeah. Or hear that. You, you're you going to be a part of it. Okay. <laughs> You'd be the, All you'd right. be the client. All right. All right. All right. Fair enough. All right. Sounds good. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking in the studio with Nick Egan, Ph.D., an award-winning leader and executive coach who uses his deep understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy to encourage personal and organizational growth. His newly released book, Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, formed the basis of our conversation today. Nick regularly leads expeditions to various Asian countries. He holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist philosophy and has a, had a stint as co-host on The Mystical Positivist earlier in the decade. Next week on the show, we will speak by telephone with Sotantar Saraj, who has practiced and studied yoga, meditation, and healing since his childhood in Spain till present day. He was privileged to meet and receive teachings from the master of kundalini yoga, Yogi Bhajan. Sotantar Saraj is a widely recognized gong avatar teacher, kundalini yoga teacher, and kundalini yoga teacher trainer in his home base in Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Diego, as well as in Europe. He has worked with and had an opportunity to learn from... Don Conroe and world-renowned Tantra teacher Mahasattva Mahananda Sardata, and he is also a Reiki master teacher, sound therapist, and hypnotherapist. In addition to his regular classes, Sotantar Saraj brings his knowledge and energy of the planet gongs to workshops and retreats around the globe. He brings the vibration of the primordial sacred sound of the planet gongs to honor our ancestors, their sacred places and traditions by participating in special events to help raise consciousness and nurture the soul. He frequently visits Spain and Ireland and offers workshops throughout the world. His passion is teaching gong avatars, kundalini yoga, tantra, and bringing the healing and transforming sounds of the gong to the world. He enjoys giving gong sessions, personal counseling, meditation, and healing planet gong concerts to celebrate oneness, peace, love, and joy, which is our natural state. Sotantar has recorded a series of CDs, including the planet gongs and Tibetan bowls for meditation, transformation, and healing. His DVDs include powerful and transformative kundalini yoga kriyas, gong immersions, and meditations. Tune in for that show with Sotantar Siraj on Saturday, August 31st from 4 to 6 p.m. The Thursdays at Many Rivers event series in Sebastopol resumes after its summer hiatus on Thursday, September 5th with... An Apology for Transcendence with Jim Wilson. Something mysteriously formed, born before heaven and earth, in the silence and the void, standing alone and unchanging, ever-present and in motion. Perhaps it is the mother of 10,000 things. I do not know its name. Call it Tao. For lack of a better word, I call it great. 
Being great, it flows. It flows far away. Having gone far, it returns. Tao Te Ching, chapter 25. There's an ancient tradition that sees the world as a symbol of a deeper reality that lies beyond our sensory experience. By transcending our sensory experience, we can shift our attention to the source, the, the mysteriously formed from which all things arise and to which all things return. In the modern world, this view is difficult to access. Contemporary culture places peculiar obstacles to the awareness of the mysteriously formed. Using the ancient spiritual traditions of Taoism and Platonism as our guides, we will discuss the way of transcendence and what this ancient way has to offer us today. Jim Wilson is a former Buddhist monk and abbot, a former prison chaplain, and a member of a local Quaker meeting. He spends most of his free time writing poetry. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send feedback and comments to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Musical uh, excuse me, called uh, Bach Sonatas and Partitas, Volume 1, performed by Chris Teeley on mandolin. This is the Allegro movement from the Partita Number 2 in A minor, BWV 1003. Enjoy. <laughs>